Do you know how deep and wide the Father's love is for you? Do you know him in a personal way? I'm thrilled to be here with, this, with you this morning and I'm thankful and honored to have been invited by Pastor Kelly to share his pulpit with, share his pulpit today. I'm thankful for Pastor Ron Kelly. He is a man who has been a blessing to me as I know he is a blessing to all of you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have gathered here. We are not interested at all in the opinion and philosophies of men. We want to hear a word of hope out of your most holy word today. I pray, dear God, that I would be an effective vessel in communicating your message today. And I pray for each and every individual that is listening that whatever obstacles may exist to the message going to the heart, that they would be removed and that we would be focused. Please help us, dear God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to share with you something that is on my heart, and that is that I am deeply concerned. I've grown more and more concerned over the course of the last few years. There is no doubt, friends, that we are living in the last days of Earth's history. And Jesus said something in the chapter on the signs of the times in Matthew chapter 24 that as I have looked more and more closely at these words, my concern has grown greater and greater. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36, the Bible says this, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But at the, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until that day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The Bible states that in the period leading up to the flood, they were simply enjoying the normal pursuits of life. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, but the flood came and took them away. In spite of the warnings that were preached by Noah, the spoken word, and the testimony of the reality that Noah built an ark, an ark of huge dimensions. Yet the spoken word and the witness of the testimony of the word made no difference in their life. They just continued on with life, seemingly oblivious to the events that were to soon take place. And that same concern is demonstrated when Jesus says in the end of time it will be just as in the days of Noah, that people will be seemingly oblivious with lives characterized as just going along with the flow. In fact, the Apostle Paul described this time in even more drastic words when he said that they would have a form of godliness but denying its power. This casual approach to following Jesus is rooted in a practice of Greek philosophy. It is the practice of segmenting and dividing our lives into unrelated segments 
And the foundation of that segmentation is that the spiritual life has no effect on our physical life, and our physical life has no effect on our spiritual life. This is a part of what is known as Greek dualism. The spiritual has nothing to do with the physical, and the physical has nothing to do with the spiritual. And dear friends, I believe this has led us to a place that is very troubling. That very troubling place is described also in the book of Revelation. It speaks of God's people just before his coming, and it describes them as Laodicean. The accusation of the Laodiceans is that they are lukewarm. They are neither hot or are they cold. You know, right now in this church, your lower level of your church has been transformed. It has been transformed into an immersion, a health immersion program. And right now, I I know this because my wife and two of my colleagues are being trained here. And I want to thank you, by the way, as a village church, I want to thank you for your commitment to reaching the community with God's message of the right arm of the gospel through health. But right now, there are a number of students that are learning the importance of hot and cold. I know this because my wife has made uh, little index cards for the studying of her quizzes and tests that are taking place during the immersion program. And so I needed to ask my wife and my two colleagues to help me understand this whole issue of hot and cold because God doesn't use imagery by accident. And I've been able to learn that hot has a soothing and, rea- a soothing and relaxing effect. It increases blood flow. It increases the inflammatory response but it it decreases muscle pain and stiffness, while cold decreases hemorrhaging, and in a cooling and refreshing sense, soothes muscle pain and spasms while stimulating the nervous system. Hopefully, Dr. Kelly, I will pass here this morning. You see, hydrotherapy at its very core moves blood stimulates the immune system and enhances the oxygenation of cells and moving nutrients into those cells. And it hit me in preparation. God wants his church in the last days to apply spiritual hydrotherapy in the world. Instead of lukewarm, he he desires a people that are hot and cold, a, a people who spiritually increase oxygenation in their bodies who spiritually increase and enhance the spiritual nutrition in their cells while increasing their immunity to sin. But unfortunately, God's church in the last days has simply become lukewarm. It is absent of cold. It is absent of hot. It has merely adapted to the temperature and conditions in its surroundings. No longer having a soothing or refreshing effect on society, no longer having a healing effect on society, but merely adapting itself to society and making little to no difference at all. And just so we're clear, because sometimes we like to keep the Laodicean message at an arm's length. The church is not a building at 12501 Old Columbia Pike in Silver Spring, Maryland. Nor is the church this building. The church is us. And let me share with you what concerns me most is this Laodicean, lukewarm, casual spiritual experience is setting us up for one of the greatest disappointments in the history of the universe. 
It is described in Matthew chapter 7. It was read as our scripture reading today. And Jesus says these words, which, are, uh, which all of them are an awful and terrible reality check. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, in some of the most sobering words in scriptures, my, in the scriptures, my friends, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I don't know about you, but that bothers me a lot. How is it possible that people who pray in the name of Jesus, people who prophesy in the name of Jesus, people who cast out demons in the name of Jesus, people who do wonders in the name of Jesus, Jesus says, I don't know you. How is that possible? The word gnosko, which is the Greek word for knowledge, at its core is defined as understanding, perceiving, but most importantly, experiencing. The reason that is significant is that in not knowing God, it is that these individuals lack an experience with God. In fact, the word to know in Matthew 7 is in the past tense and the active voice. Why is that important? Because this is not a one time, I forgot who you are. This is, describes an ongoing and continuous action. It is that God, that Jesus specifically, doesn't know us, but in an ongoing way didn't know who we were. And again I ask, how is that possible? The passage gives us some insight by saying that they are the ones that practice lawlessness. What makes the word lawlessness so terrible is not that it is an antinomian that is an against the law, but rather it is anomianism, which means the absence of the law. These individuals have perfected a life of dualism. They look good on the outside, even working for God actively, yet... They don't know him because they do not have the internal experience with God. He doesn't know them because there is an absence of his law in their lives. He doesn't know them because they really don't know him. The Apostle Paul adds some clarity to this in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says, Now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. If anyone loves God, they are known by him. Paul places an important emphasis that knowledge is not merely data or information. But he adds that word, love. And you'll remember what Jesus said that helps draw this together. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You see, in order to love him, we must trust him enough to be obedient to him. But if we do not know Jesus, we will not obey him. And in turn, we will not know him. 
2 Timothy 2.19 adds this and reinforces the principle. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. What is it to depart from iniquity? 1 John 3.4 makes it quite clear. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The Lord knows those who are his and are obedient to him. Even more clarity is added by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be, excuse me, to which you desire again to be in bondage? You see, the Apostle Paul equates knowing God with being known by God. To be known by God is the, re- is the reality that we have come to trust God, and in trusting God, we have become obedient to God. What does it mean to know God and be known by him? It is really the dilemma of ages. It's at the heart of the great controversy between good and evil. Do we know God and do we know his character? And to answer that question, I'd like for us to turn to an Old Testament book. And if I'm perfectly honest with you, it is a book that I have often overlooked or even skipped over in my reading. It is easy to skip over it because in chapter 1 it speaks of the whirlwind and fire. It speaks of living creatures that are strangely described. It speaks of wheels within wheels with faces upon the wheels. Of course it is the book of Ezekiel. And in my devotional life over the course of the last year and a half... I have been listening through the Bible rather than reading through it. And in listening to the book of Ezekiel, because when I came to the book of Ezekiel, I said, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to understand this. But I committed myself. I want to understand the book of Ezekiel. And when we understand Ezekiel in the context of his two contemporary prophets, Jeremiah and Daniel, It opens our eyes to a reality. You see, Daniel was the prophet who was in Babylon. Jeremiah was the prophet that was in Jerusalem, whereas Ezekiel was not taken in the first invasion by Babylon. He stayed in Jerusalem and prophesied from Jerusalem for a time, but then was taken into Babylon in the second invasion. But as I listened through Ezekiel, there was a phrase that caught my attention. I heard it the first few times and thought it was interesting. Then I heard it a third time and a fourth time. I heard it a fifth time and a sixth time and a seventh time. And by the time I had heard it for the 63rd time in the book of Ezekiel, it had caught my attention. That phrase that occurs 63 times in the 49 chapters of the book of Ezekiel is the phrase that they would know that I am the Lord. Over and over again it is repeated. 63 times in Ezekiel, 78 times in the Old Testament. The first appearance is in Ezekiel chapter 6 and verse 7 where Ezekiel writes, the slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. In addition to this, in 173 other instances, God declares that he is Lord or he is God. The message is very clear. The message of the Bible is clear. God wants us to know him personally. 
It is the core issue of the great controversy. Who is Lord of your life? Do we know the Lord? Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8.60, a prayer that is the desire of God's heart. And it's a very simple prayer that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. So what does it mean to know that he is Lord? There are two questions we will answer very briefly and then we will look at six ways to know that he is Lord. First, it's important to understand what it means to know. In the Old Testament, it is the Hebrew word yada. In the New Testament, it is the words oida and gnosko. Collectively, those words appear 541 times in the Bible, which consists of 1,200 chapters. It is most often used in reference to God as the most intimate of experiences. It is the same word used when it, the Bible says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived a child. But the intimacy that exists or that God desires between us and him is different than that between a husband and wife because it's not so much speaking of the physical action of intimacy, but rather the bounds of the relationship that creates the environment for that closeness and intimacy. There are mainly two features to the marriage relationship that set the context of that closeness and intimacy. First, the marriage relationship is exclusive in nature. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It is exclusive. No others are able or should enter within that exclusive circle. The second is the unconditional love of that relationship. Love with no strings attached. This is why when Throughout the Bible, God declares that he is Lord. It is accompanied by an additional phrase. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6 is an example of that principle where God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So knowing that he is Lord is founded on the principles of an exclusive, unconditional, loving experience and understanding of God. Proverbs adds a, an additional dimension in chapter 1 and verse 7 where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge literally awe or reverence. So to know God or to have a knowledge of God is an exclusive, loving, reverential relationship. But also important to answering the question is, who is the Lord? The word Lord there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is the name of God. It is the formal name of God. It was considered to be so holy in Judaism that the name Yahweh would never be pronounced. It would be replaced by the word Adonai. The name Yahweh is rooted in the Hebrew verb Hayah. Why is that important? Because Hayah is the Hebrew word that simply means to be. And while, yes, this conveys the idea that God's existence is of a self-existence, that he is, that he is who he says he is, that's a bit too abstract. And God is vastly more practical in his desire to be in a relationship and experience with us. 
The words that have been used in the Bible to try to describe his name are fearful and glorious, but rooted the, 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 excuse me, the most important aspect of the definition of God's name is that it is rooted in his desire to be near us and his concern for humanity and our redemption. So to know God is fundamentally this. It is to enter into an exclusive, loving, reverential experience of understanding God's very personal nearness and his concern for the redemption of humanity and most important my redemption and so with that established how is it that we can come to know him in that way for the sake of time we will not go through all 63 occurrences to know that I am the Lord but when you look at those actually 78 occurrences in the Old Testament, you can categorize them into six categories. How is it that we can come to know him? First, we can know him through the experience of salvation and deliverance. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7 says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I know him through the salvation experience because through that experience, I come to an understanding that God adopts me, he rescues me, he makes me his own, and he brings me out of Egypt, most importantly, spiritual Egypt, which is a representation of sin in my life. When we talk about the salvation experience, my dear friends, it is very important for all of us to fundamentally understand a few realities. Romans 3.23 is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no parenthetical exceptions to that. It doesn't say all except those who have been to Adventist schools. It doesn't say all except those who were homeschooled. It doesn't say all except those who read the Bible. It doesn't say all except. It says all, which means every single one of us is in desperate need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, I used to want to be a math teacher when I was growing up, and I know for some of you that's now troubled you dearly for me, but I enjoy math. And if we look at this in a mathematical equation, if all have sinned or for all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, that therefore means what? All will die. Don't worry, there's good news. But the, way to, but, but, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see, in order to know that he is Lord and to be known by him, we must acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. Any righteousness that we think we might have, God tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. My dear friends, we are not smart enough, we are not crafty enough to save ourselves. Our eternal destiny without a personal relationship with Jesus is eternal death and separation from him. But the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 verses 11 to 14 invites us into the salvation experience. The salvation experience is described as this. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. 
Cast off the works of the flesh. Cast off the works of darkness. Those things that are opposed to God. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved because you will know him and be known by him. In the Review and Herald on July the 19th, 1892, it says this, There is nothing in us from which we can clothe the soul so that its nakedness shall not appear. We are to receive the robe of righteousness woven in the loom of heaven, even the spotless robe of Christ's righteousness. To know him, my dear friends, means that we must first come to a place where we fundamentally understand there is nothing in us that can save us. In fact, the Bible is clear that it is he alone who saves. Acts 4.12 declares there is no other name under heaven given among men which, excuse me, by which we must be saved. And Jesus said words in John chapter 14 that are not words well received in the 21st century because of their exclusive nature. Jesus simply said, I am the way. We don't like the exclusive nature of these things because we want many ways. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, there were a set of books that I had called Choose Your Own Adventure. And we, as you read the book, you would choose. Oh, I'm going to go through that door. No, I'm going to walk through the woods. And you would read in different places within the book, and it had different endings. Unfortunately, dear friends, many of us treat our spiritual journey as choose your own adventure. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Friends, to know God and be known by him happens through the experience, the personal experience of salvation. We cannot work our way to heaven. We must come to a place where we come to him acknowledge that we are sinners, repent, and ask him to give us the strength to walk in the newness of life. We must do more than merely know about him. We must have a personal experience with him in salvation. Secondly, we can come to know him through embracing the judgment. Ezekiel 11.10 states, You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Judgment is nothing to fear, but it is also to not be taken lightly. When we talk about judgment, there are two categories of judgment. There is temporal judgment and its consequences in our current life. And then there is the final judgment, the eternal judgment, which will decide our eternal destiny. When we talk about temporal judgment, it often does not bring about feelings of joy. It often doesn't bring about comfort. Temporal judgment is often, temp along with temporal judgment, comes consequences. What do I mean by this? Judah wasn't excited to hear from the prophet Jeremiah saying, bring yourself back into alignment with God or there will be trouble coming from the north. Once the children of Israel were continually disobedient to that and that trouble came in the form of Babylon, Jeremiah's counsel was simple. Surrender to the Babylonians. But they did not want to do that. And therefore, their consequence was captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Friends, the nation of Judah was not excited to be conquered. Yet because they chose disobedience, judgment was brought upon them. And their consequences led to, and the consequences of their actions led to captivity. Consequences are rarely, if ever, comfortable experiences. But judgment and consequences help us to know that he is the Lord. It helps us to comprehend the importance of obedience. And so instead of complaining, instead of murmuring, we can confess to him, confess to the ones that we have wronged, and accept the consequences of judgment which teach us about the character of God. 
Psalm 916 says the Lord is known by the judgment he executes. Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Notice what the psalmist points out. Judgment actually help us to, helps us to understand the faithfulness of God. And that is why judgment is so vital. Again in Psalm 119 and verse 52, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. And then in verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. The judgment and the consequences that follow, although uncomfortable, help us to realize the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God, and the importance of obedience to him. But when we think of the eternal judgment, the eternal judgment demonstrates the character of God in such beautiful ways. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 John chapter 1, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. How does the judgment teach us about the character of God? First, in the judgment, Jesus is our advocate. The word advocate there is the Greek word parakletos. It is only used one other place in the New Testament, and that is in the description of the Holy Spirit, where it is translated as comforter. So Jesus is our advocate, which literally means he is the one that draws up next to us. But in the judgment, he is not only the one that draws up next to us, the Bible says that he is the propitiation. That is, that he is the atoning sacrifice, which means very simply that Jesus paid the price in the judgment. He paid the price for our sin and created the only path by which we can be reconciled with God. And if all of that wasn't enough, Jesus himself in John 5.22 says this, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. In the judgment, it is the greatest demonstration of the character of God because Jesus is judge. Jesus is the one that draws up and stands next to us. And Jesus paid the price. It's no wonder the apostle Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? The judgment shows us that God is doing everything he can to save us. And it helps us to know how loving he is. It helps us to know his character. We know God and are known by him through embracing the judgment, through a personal experience of salvation, and now thirdly, we come to know God through the sanctuary. Exodus 29, 46 says this, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The Exodus experience had one goal and that is this, that God's people could build a sanctuary that the Lord could dwell with them. The sanctuary was a demonstration of God's desire to be at the very center of everyone's life. The sanctuary is where God's help comes from. Psalm 20 and verse 2 says, May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. The sanctuary teaches us the importance of God being central in our life, in all matters of our life. The sanctuary teaches us that God is our helper. And so it should come as no surprise that the sanctuary has been attacked throughout history. The Philistines attacked the sanctuary. The Israelites defiled the sanctuary through false worship. The Babylonians destroyed the sanctuary. The Romans destroyed the sanctuary. And in these last days, the dragon is wroth 
with the woman and has raised up some to attempt to deny the reality of the sanctuary and through various means to once again to destroy the sanctuary and its teaching. But the Bible is clear. The sanctuary is where we are to look to know that God will prevail. Psalm 63 and verse 2, So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Friends, the sanctuary teaches us that some will trust in chariots and some will trust in horses, but we will trust in the Lord. Here in the 21st century, we don't have chariots and horses. So how might we understand this? Well, we have plenty of chariot-like things in our lives. Some trust in finances, some trust in relationships, some trust in themselves, some trust in pastors, some trust in the church. But the sanctuary teaches us that we know God and we trust him alone. Some trust in money, some trust in jobs, some trust in relationships, some trust in their pastor, some in churches, and some even in themselves. But we will trust the Lord. The sanctuary teaches us that the ultimate reality is to know Christ as Lord of our life alone. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, And two, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. There is one focal point of our attention. We come to know that he is Lord through looking to the sanctuary and we see that he is our help that he is our power. We see his glory. We see his strength. We see his salvation. And that is how we come to know that he is Lord. In fact, the whole sanctuary is symbolic of our relationship with Jesus. The laver represents that Jesus is the one who cleanses us. The table of showbread represents to us that we will not survive on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The seven-branched candlestick demonstrates to us that we shall not live by might or power, but by the Holy Spirit. The altar of incense teaches us the importance of prayer and what prayer does for God as the incense rises to him. Excuse me, rises to him. And then the ark of the covenant teaches us God's authority, God's provision, and God's standard. So we may know that he is the Lord through an experience in the sanctuary, through embracing the judgment, through a personal journey and experience in salvation. But we might also know that he is Lord by keeping the Sabbath. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12 says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths, to be a sign between them and me. And that is often where we stop that verse. But the latter portion of that verse says that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Ezekiel 20 and verse 20 says, Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. This is not new. The children of Israel knew through their generation, through their generations, that keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath would draw them near to God and help them to understand that He is the Creator that in six days he created the earth and all that in it is, that he spoke and it stood fast, excuse me, that he spoke and it was done, that he commanded and it stood fast. They knew that the Sabbath helped them to know God as Redeemer and he is the one who led them out of literal Egypt and he is the one who leads us out of spiritual Egypt and that the Sabbath helps us to know the sanctifying power of God. And that just as God sanctified a day, he is now sanctifying a people for his kingdom. And Jesus confirms all of this 
when he said in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. If we want to know God is Lord, we are called to obey all of his commandments. But in particular, the fourth commandment signifies a special sign and symbol that we would know him as Lord. And so if we want to know him as Lord, we may know him through keeping the Sabbath. We may know him through an experience in the sanctuary we may know him through embracing the judgment, and we may know him through a personal journey of salvation. But we also may know that he is Lord through prophecy. Ezekiel said these words in Ezekiel 24, 24. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you, according to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. God is known through prophecy. Amos 3.7 tells us that God reveals his secrets to the prophets. My dear friends, throughout the Old and New Testament, all of the prophets and their prophecies pointed to Jesus Christ that we would know him as Lord. And in these last days, God has manifest the prophetic gift in his church and that gift has been manifest, and many of us are ignoring those writings. We have set the red books on the shelf and ignoring, but had we been reading, it would have helped us to avert many of the problems that we now face. The prophetic gift has come under attack both from within and from without. And the question simply is, is what will we do? We have ignored the counsel. And my dear friend, if your, experience, if your experience has been one where the prophetic writings have been used to bash you over the head, my invitation to you is simply this. Go and pick up a book and read for yourself. Go read a book like Desire of Ages or Steps to Christ. Go read a book like Acts of the Apostles, Prophets and Kings, and see God speak in a mighty way. But we have ignored the counsel and we are in danger. We are in danger of not knowing him as Lord. That's five ways that we are able to know that he is Lord. First, through a personal journey of salvation. Second, through embracing the judgment. Third, through an experience in the sanctuary. Fourth, by keeping his Sabbath. Fifth, through heeding the prophetic counsel. And sixth, through hope in his return and restoration. Ezekiel 39, verses 22, and then 28 to 29 says this. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. You see, when Ezekiel wrote these words, Ezekiel was not speaking of some temporal restoration of a literal Jerusalem, but rather he was speaking of an eternal restoration. The latter chapters of Ezekiel describe what might have been had Israel listened, what might have been had Israel obeyed, what might have been if Israel had come to know that he is the Lord. My dear friends, God is coming again. Jesus is coming again to restore all things. And the fundamental question of to know him and be known by him is will we be restored? Excuse me, will we be restored with all things? Will we be restored as a part of his grand restoration? Will we be a part of the fulfillment of the words of the Apostle Paul? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. 
To know God and be known by him leads to the ultimate restoration where we will be separated no longer. It leads to the final restoration where the great chasm between us and God will be no more. It will lead to the restoration of all things where there will be no more dying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease, and no more goodbyes. Those who know God and are known by him are those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. And my question is, is do we know him, friends? Do we know him? Because we can know him through hope and the experience of total restoration. We can know him through heeding the prophetic counsel. We can know him by keeping the Sabbath. We can know him through an experience in the sanctuary. We can know him through embracing the judgment, and we can know him through a personal journey of salvation. And so I want to ask you today, do you know him? You see, ultimately this decision comes back to one basic fundamental issue. Will we choose to know God and yield all things to him? Or will we choose the more selfish path? I am God and there is no other. Is there an other in your life that is competing with God? It could be anything. Is it music? Is it media? Is it a relationship? Is it an addiction? Whatever it is, fill in the blank. What is the other in our life that stands as competition for God being alone? The Bible describes Babylon in the days of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel as being his instrument. In fact, it uses the words his chosen instrument. But something happened to Babylon. And Isaiah 47 describes it and ultimately this description is the core of spiritual Babylon today. Isaiah 47, 8 through 10. Therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am And there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. Babylon said, I am and there's no one else besides me. The question I have for you is who sits on the throne of your heart? Is it the Lord? Or is it yourself? And if it is yourself, that ultimately means you have chosen the path of the arch deceiver. Friends, God is gathering his people in these last days. He is gathering his remnant. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to attend the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. The National Religious Broadcasters Convention has made it very clear. They have one goal. They will be for the First Amendment what the NRA has been for the Second Amendment. It is this great gathering of evangelical leaders who are broadcasting the message of salvation in whatever means they can. But something happened while I was there that I have never heard before, 
in evangelical circles. A man by the name of Michael Youssef, who is a pastor of a large megachurch in Atlanta, Georgia, first on opening night, as he described the challenges facing the church, he actually began by saying, I spoke at the NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters, 13 years ago on Jeremiah 11, and afterwards many people said, Pastor, that was a tough message. And then he stood and he said, it's 13 years later, and the news isn't any better. In fact, it's worse. And then he began to talk about the problem that the church is facing in the 21st century has begun in the pulpit because of a lack of biblical preaching. The next morning is where I was quite astounded as this man described the end of time and then he used this phrase. He said, I believe that God is now gathering his remnant. I've not heard that before from an evangelical. In another panel discussion later, Eric Metaxas, who is a political commentator, began talking about the challenges that the church is facing in the 21st century, talking about how we have come to a place of biblical illiteracy. And then he said, I believe with all my heart that we are in the last days and God right now is gathering his remnant. Why am I telling you this? Because, dear friends, God is on the move preparing a people for the end of time. Early writings, page 271, warns us as God's people in these last days that there is a great shaking coming. And the warning is, is that we would not be shaken out. But the next page then gives us hope and says that those who are shaken out in the midst of this time, their place will be filled by those who God is preparing on the outside right now. And the question that I'm asking myself as we have explored this issue where Jesus says, I never knew you, is will we know him and will we be known? God is preparing us now and God is preparing many others now. Now is not the time to sit back with a calloused heart, to sit back with an indifferent or oblivious heart, now is the time to come to know him and be known by him. In the book Desire of Ages, as I conclude, it describes the time in which Jesus came the first time. And I want you to listen to these words, and then I will challenge you with a modern-day application. It was with amazement that the heavenly messengers beheld the indifference of the people whom God had called to communicate to the world the light of sacred truth. The Jewish nation had been preserved as a witness that Christ was to be born of the seed of Abraham and of David's line, yet they knew not that his coming was now at hand. In the temple, the morning and evening sacrifice daily pointed to the Lamb of God, yet even here there was no preparation to receive him. The priests and teachers of the nation knew not that the greatest event of the ages was about to take place. And now listen to these words. They rehearsed their meaningless prayers and performed the rites of worship to be seen by men, but in their strife for riches and worldly honor, they were not prepared for the revelation of the Messiah. The same indifference pervaded the land of Israel. Hearts selfish and world engrossed were untouched by the joy that thrilled all heaven. Only a few were longing to behold the unseen. To these, heaven's embassy was sent. I'm afraid we are in a crisis that this may repeat itself. Will we be counted amongst the few who know him and long for his return. God is gathering his remnant, those that know him and are known by him, those who have hope 
in the experience of total restoration, those who are heeding the prophetic counsel, those who are keeping his Sabbath, those who have an experience in the sanctuary, those who embrace the judgment, and those who have a personal journey of salvation. Will we be counted? Will we be counted? As we close today, I want to invite you to open your hymnals to number 322, a hymn written by Charles Tindley, a man who was serving as a janitor of a church and began studying theology and putting himself through school. Eventually, that church asked him to be their pastor. And as that church grew at the power of God's word being preached by Charles Tindley, they were expanding the church. And as they were expanding the church, people began to fight over money. They began to fight over how it would look. They began to fight about many earthly and worldly things. And it was out of that that Charles Tindley wrote this hymn nothing between. Today I simply want to ask you, what is it that is between you and knowing God and being known by him? And what will it take to come to a place where there's nothing between? Let's stand together and sing number 322, Nothing Between.